Chapter forty four of Izzy Popenjoy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Izzy Popenjoy by Antony Trollope. Chapter forty four. What the Brotherton clergyman said about it. Had Jack knocked at the door and asked for Lady George, he certainly would not have seen her. She was enduring at that moment, with almost silent obstinacy, the fierce anger of her indignant husband. She was sure that it would be bad for her to go to Cross Hall at present, or anywhere among the Germains while such things were said of her as the Marquis had said. Could Lord George have declared that the Marquis was at war with the family, as he had been at war some weeks since, this argument would have fallen to the ground. But he could not do so, and it seemed to be admitted that by going to Cross Hall she was to take part against her father, and so far to take part with the Marquis who had maligned her. This became her strong point, and as Lord George was not strong in argument, he allowed her to make the most of it. "'Surely you wouldn't let me go anywhere,' she said, "'where such names as that are believed against me?' She had not heard the name, nor had he, and they were in the dark, but she pleaded her cause well, and appealed again and again to her husband's promise to take her to the deanery. His stronghold was that of marital authority, authority unbounded, legitimate, and not to be questioned. "'But if you commanded me to quarrel with papa?' she asked. "'I have commanded nothing of the kind.' "'But if you did?' "'Then you must quarrel with him.' "'I couldn't and I wouldn't,' said she, burying her face upon the arm of the sofa. At any rate, on the next morning she didn't go, nor, indeed, did he come to fetch her, so convinced had he been of the persistency of her obstinacy. But he told her, as he left her, that if she separated herself from him now, then the separation must be lasting. Her father, however, foreseeing this threat, had told her just the reverse. "'He is an obstinate man,' the dean had said, but he is good and conscientious, and he loves you. I hope he loves me. I am sure he does. He is not a fickle man. At present he has put himself into his brother's hands, and we must wait till the tide turns. He will learn by degrees to know how unjust he has been. So it came to pass that Lord George went down to Cross Hall in the morning, and that Mary accompanied her father to the deanery the same afternoon. The dean had already learned that it would be well that he should face his clerical enemies as soon as possible. He had already received a letter worded in friendly terms from the bishop, asking him whether he would not wish to make some statement as to the occurrence at Scumberg's Hotel which might be made known to the clergyman of the cathedral. He had replied by saying that he wished to make no such statement, but that on his return to Brotherton he would be very willing to tell the bishop the whole story, if the bishop wished to hear it. He had been conscious of Mr. Groshut's hand, even among the civil phrases which had come from the bishop himself. "'In such a matter,' he said in his reply, "'I am amenable to the laws of the land, and am not, as I take it, amenable to any other authority.' Then he went on to say that for his own satisfaction he should be very glad to tell the story to the bishop. The story, as it reached Brotherton, had no doubt given rise to a great deal of scandal and a great deal of amusement. Pountner and Holdenough were to some extent ashamed of their bellicose dean. There was something ill-mannered, ungentlemanlike, what we now call rowdy, in personal encounters even among laymen, 
and this is of course aggravated when the assailant is a clergyman and these canons though they kept up pleasant social relations with the dean were not ill-disposed to make use of so excellent a weapon against a man who though coming from a lower order than themselves was never disposed in any way to yield to them but the two canons were gentlemen and as gentlemen were gracious though they liked to have the dean on the hip they did not want to hurt him sorely when they had gotten him there they would be contented with certain sly allusions and only half-expressed triumphs but mr groschut was confirmed in his opinion that the dean was altogether unfit for his position which for the interests of the church should be filled by some such man as mr groschut himself by some god-fearing clergyman not known as a hard rider across country and a bruiser with his fists there had been an article in the brotherton church gazette in which an anxious hope was expressed that some explanation would be given of the very incredible tidings which had unfortunately reached brotherton then mr groschut had spoken a word in season to the bishop of course he said it could not be true but would it not be well that the dean should be invited to make his own statement it was mr groschut who had himself used the word incredible in the article mr groschut in speaking to the bishop said that the tidings must be untrue and yet he believed and rejoiced in believing every word of them he was a pious man and did not know that he was lying he was an anxious christian and did not know that he was doing his best to injure an enemy behind his back he hated the dean but he thought he loved him he was sure that the dean would go to some unpleasant place and gloried in the certainty but he thought that he was most anxious for the salvation of the dean's soul i think your lordship owes it to him to offer him the opportunity said mr groschut the bishop too was what we call a severe man but his severity was used chiefly against himself he was severe in his principles but knowing the world better than his chaplain was aware how much latitude it was necessary that he should allow in dealing with men and in his heart of hearts he had a liking for the dean whenever there were any tiffs the dean could take a blow and give a blow and then think no more about it this which was a virtue in the eyes of the bishop was no virtue at all to mr groschut who hated to be hit himself and wished to think that his own blows were fatal in urging the matter with the bishop mr groschut expressed an opinion that if this story were unfortunately true the dean should cease to be dean he thought that the dean must see this himself i am given to understand that he was absolutely in custody of the police said mr groschut the bishop was annoyed by his chaplain but still he wrote the letter on the very morning of his arrival in brotherton the dean went to the palace well my lord said the dean you have heard this cock-and-bull story i have heard a story said the bishop he was an old man very tall and very thin looking as though he had crushed out of himself all taste for the pomps and vanities of this wicked world but singularly urbane in his manner with an old-fashioned politeness he smiled as he invited the dean to a seat and then expressed a hope that nobody had been much hurt very serious injuries have been spoken of here but i know well how rumour magnifies these things had i killed him my lord i should have been neither more nor less to blame than i am now for i certainly endeavoured to do my worst to him the bishop's face assumed a look of pain and wonder when i had the miscreant in my hands i did not pause to measure the weight of my indignation 
He told me, me, a father, that my child was— He had risen from his chair, and as he pronounced the words, stood looking into the bishop's eyes. If there be purity on earth, sweet feminine modesty, playfulness devoid of guile, absolute freedom from any stain of leprosy, they are to be found with my girl. Yes, yes, I am sure of that. She is my worldly treasure. I have none other. I desire none other. I had wounded this man by certain steps which I have taken in reference to his family, and then, that he might wound me in return, he did not scruple to use that word to his own sister-in-law, to my daughter. Was that a time to consider whether a clergyman may be justified in putting out his strength? No, my lord, old as you are, you would have attempted it yourself. I took him up and smote him, and it is not my fault if he is not a cripple for life. The bishop gazed at him speechlessly, but felt quite sure that it was not in his power to rebuke his fellow clergyman. Now, my lord, continued the dean, you have heard the story. I tell it to you, and I shall tell it to no one else. I tell it you, not because you are the bishop of this diocese, and I the dean of this cathedral, and as such I am in such a matter by no means subject to your lordship's authority, but because of all my neighbours you are the most respected, and I would wish that the truth should be known to some one. Then he ceased, neither enjoining secrecy, or expressing any wish that the story should be correctly told to others. "'He must be a cruel man,' said the bishop. "'No, my lord, he is no man at all. He is a degraded animal, unfortunately placed almost above penalties by his wealth and rank. I am glad to think that he has at last encountered some little punishment, though I could wish that the use of the scourge had fallen into other hands than mine.' Then he took his leave, and as he went the bishop was very gracious to him. "'I am almost inclined to think he was justified,' said the bishop to Mr. Groshut. "'Justified, my lord, the dean, in striking the Marquis of Brotherton, and then falling into the hands of the police?' "'I know nothing about the police. "'May I ask your lordship what was his account of the transaction?' "'I cannot give it to you. I simply say that I think he was justified.' Then Mr. Groshut expressed his opinion to Mrs. Groshut that the bishop was getting old, very old indeed. Mr. Groshut was almost afraid that no good could be done in the diocese till a firmer and a younger man sat in the seat. The main facts of the story came to the knowledge of the canons, though I doubt whether the bishop ever told all that was told to him. Some few hard words were said. Canon Pountner made a remark in the dean's hearing about the church militant, which drew forth from the dean an allusion to the rites of Bacchus, which the canon only half understood. And Dr. Holdenough asked the dean whether there had not been some little trouble between him and the Marquis. "'I am afraid you have been a little hard upon my noble brother-in-law,' said the doctor. To which the dean replied that the doctor should teach his noble brother-in-law better manners. But upon the whole the dean held his own well, and was as carefully waited upon to his seat by the verges as though there had been no scene at Scumberg's Hotel. For a time, no doubt, there was a hope on the part of Mr. Groshut and his adherents that there would be some further police interference, that the Marquis would bring an action, or that the magistrates would demand some inquiry, but nothing was done. The Marquis endured his bruised back at any rate in silence. But there came tidings to Brotherton that his lordship would not again be seen at Manor Cross that year. 
The house had been kept up as though for him, and he had certainly declared his purpose of returning when he left the place. He had indeed spoken of living there almost to the end of autumn. But early in July it became known that when he left Scumberg's hotel he would go abroad, and before the middle of July it was intimated to Lady Alice, and through her to all Brotherton, that the dowager with her daughters and Lord George were going back to the old house. In the meantime Lady George was still at the deanery, and Lord George at Cross Hall, and to the eyes of the world the husband had been separated from his wife. His anger was certainly very deep, especially against his wife's father. The fact that his commands had been twice, nay, as he said, thrice, disobeyed, rankled in his mind. He had ordered her not to waltz, and she had waltzed with, as Lord George thought, the most objectionable man in all London. He had ordered her to leave town with him immediately after Mrs. Jones' ball, and she had remained in town. He had ordered her now to leave her father and to cleave to him, but she had cleft to her father and had deserted him. What husband can do other than repudiate his wife under such circumstances as these? He was moody, gloomy, silent, never speaking of her, never going into Brotherton lest by chance he should see her, but always thinking of her, and always, always longing for her company. She talked of him daily to her father, and was constant in her prayer that they should not be made to quarrel. Having so long doubted whether she could ever love him, she now could not understand the strength of her own feeling. "'Papa, mightn't I write to him?' she said but her father thought that she should not herself take the first step, at any rate till the Marquis was gone. It was she who had in fact been injured, and the overture should come from the other side. Then at last, in a low whisper, hiding her face, she told her father a great secret, adding, with a voice a little raised, "'Now, papa, I must write to him.' "'My darling, my dearest,' said the dean, leaning over and kissing her, with more than his usual demonstration of love. "'I may write now?' "'Yes, dear, you should certainly tell him that.' Then the dean went out and walked round the deanery garden, and the cathedral cloisters, and the close, assuring himself that after a very little while the real Lord Popenjoy would be his own grandson. End of chapter 44